I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit LondonReviewBookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome, uh, welcome to the London Review Bookshop, and uh, welcome everybody at home. It's such a pleasure to be um, to be doing the first hybrid event with people actually in the shop. It's uh, it's it's a real treat to to see everybody and to think of everybody um, in the wider world as well. Um, I'm going to introduce uh, Martina Evans. Um, I was so grateful that she she agreed to uh, to come and do this because she's been a poet whose work I've admired for a very long time. Um, I first discovered her work when um, I started at the bookshop. I discovered it entirely through the titles of her books. She has an absolute genius for, uh, for titles. Um, now we can talk openly about men. All alcoholics are charmers. American mules. American mules, I think, is masterful. And especially in American mules, the long sequence called Mountainy Men. That's, I, I, if you, you put a poem in front of me called Mountainy Men, whatever it is like, I'm going to read it. And it is, uh, it is, an, it is, an, absolute, uh, it is an absolute wonder. And I commend the book and uh, Martina you. Uh, to you all. And with that done, I hand over to Martina. I've had to make some notes because I'm, I'm getting very forgetful. Um, weeding is Jess McKinney's first pamphlet. And she's distinguished already, widely published in all the best magazines, with an Irish Chair of Poetry Student Award. And Weeding has also been shortlisted for the Patrick Kavanagh Award. This is such an exciting collection with serious, uncanny notes, which communicate a very fresh and exciting way of looking at language. So there's a lot of ekphrastic poems in here. And when Jess writes about photos or art, it's not a passive act. She totally enters that piece of art. And we, the readers, wander in after her, experiencing it through her senses. So when I first got this, the pamphlet fell open on the poem Olive. And it opens, licking wallpaper is never a polite way to behave. And I was just so drawn in. Um, it's a love poem to William Morris, I think, among other things. And to me, it works like a rich tapestry, a tapestry that is alive, teeming with its own organic vitality. And there are a few poems and, that have a colour hex code with them. Olive is one. 
and another one is sea, and another one is fern. And you have that same experience. It's, it's wonderful, and the shape of them and everything really reminds me of a tapestry. So she begins with a color, and a color, every color has its own frequency, vibration. And from that, she builds a network that links all of life. The colors are the conduit for her poetic sensibility. And they are, I think it was Rothko said, he called his colors his performers. And I think Jess's colors are definitely her performers. So, Jess McKinney. <laughs> Uh, thank you for that beautiful, uh, thoughtful introduction. All I've ever wanted in life, I think, is to have anything I've written uh, likened to a tapestry. Um, it's my only aspiration. Um, it's really beautiful to be here with you all tonight um, in a real-life bookshop, a bookshop I've never visited until today. And it's it feels very, very special. Thank you all for making the effort to come out, and thank you to Hazel Press, thank you to Anna and Daphne and John and all the team here as well for having us and giving us free wine among many other good things um yeah i'm gonna read a couple of poems uh, gotta do something now you're all here <laughs> um i never really know where to begin so i kind of just begin at the start and uh i've earmarked a couple in it and some special uh green little stickers here you'll notice green's kind of a thing <laughs> this whole thing um and the first poem i wanted to read for you today uh, it's called Asleep on the Wing, um, and it's about birds. I think during COVID and lockdown, wherever anybody was, there was more than enough time to be looking at birds. And uh, of course, that leaked into some poems. Asleep on the Wing. I had a dream someone told me swifts could perceive 37 more shades of blue than the average human. It took an embarrassingly long time to realize that the conversation had never actually happened and I had conflated the mantis shrimp with their eyes packed full of photoreceptors. By then, I had already spent hours looking at the sky, holding out for swoops and listening to recordings of their calls on the internet. I had dubbed them the creature of namesake, all direction, and started several romantic poems. It's true, all summer I've been sitting around blowing small insects from my limbs with a hasty retreat that is the closest I will come to their flight. Thank you. I'd like to kind of start with that one because I feel like that's a very good uh, peek into my very lazy process of, of, of taking the world and writing about it over COVID. Well, trying to. Um, this next one I'd, I'd, I'd earmarked to read. It's called The Good Kind of Green. Uh, it's about my love of green, which again, yeah, in a lot of ways, I feel the green poems of this pamphlet really did save me. In some ways, I've never put together a full publication and uh, structuring it was kind of a challenge. And uh, the green poems kind of brought everything together and, and kind of created a spine through the work. And uh, this was written after Federico Garcia Lorca, one of his books I was actually just looking at downstairs, and his poem For the Love of Green. As children, we ate leaves and let on they were anything else. That heat of believing. Swimming out to kiss your thinning digits, I was happy to get it wrong. Mistook your waving for drowning, foregrounding the sun set into a thumbprint. Your steady gaze above the waves, a stilled field of eyebright, locked me in an uncertainty of cool tones. 
artichoke, bitter, bud, cabbage, citrus, cucumber, dill, Douglas fir, eucalyptus, evergreen, grass, kale, kiwi, lake, leek, lion peel, mint, moss, nile, nori, olive, pea, pear, peppermint, poison ivy, prairie, reef, sea mist, shisho, silt, snow pea, soft moss, spearmint, spinach dip, surf spray, sweet pea, tender yellow, tinted mint, treetop, undersea, your hand creeping up, the inner seam of my wide-legged slacks, the heavy duster folded away for summer, the stout pen lifted from the bookies, quick twisting my pubic hair with the garden gate hiccuping after you, all in the same breath. Verde, quid de quiero verde. You wake to go quietly. Your shadow hangs hungry in the doorway, known from the inside. Thank you. Um, I always like to congratulate myself for making it through that list without stumbling horribly. <laughs> You're all witness to that now, you have to remember. Anybody asks you about me, that's what you say. Um, I've changed my mind about what I was going to read because you brought up a poem earlier and it's uh, rather Halloween-y and we are in the spooky season. This one is called Splinter. Um, it's a little bit about an imaginative sister. It's not my own sister, she would be very affronted by that. <laughs> and it's kind of born of uh, this little weird thing my sister and I used to play. We had a game with my mom where we thought that these fairies lived at the bottom of our garden and uh, we thought they were real and they only came out at night and that's when they left our notes for us. It was actually my mom writing us notes and leaving them in the garden for us to find. Anyway, weird folk tales, Halloween-y, that's all you need to know. Splinter. When second sister drew first blood, the cows chewed through the hedge to get at the road and all the magpies were widowed. Her turn came early to be planted in the dirt, hair plaited to the weeds. Nightly, I missed her warmth alongside in bed, stealing out to prod the cocoon and sing to her likeness moving amphibious, near glowing. Encircled by a wreath of oak apples and gall flies, until she hatched unsteadily by eventide with a shudder to our wide arms. With wings pressed paper, withered to her neck, the breeze faltered, turned thick, Realization crept up dark and quick like a murky tide beneath a salamandrine moon. There came a niggling sense of insistence, shifting between strange and stranger. What came back wasn't what went in. She figgied out of the fuchsia off the cuff of autumn shed velvet pelt, the colors of summer pinned like moths to corkboard. Her smile was bent and I began to suspect a mischief that was always clearer by night. Her eyes lingered somewhere fatter, lunar. Our room grew smaller, circled to a cell. Hide and seek stretched into weeks and crawled into corners I couldn't see. When we hunched nine Hail Marys before bed, I felt her weird walking about my head, heard her running backwards through the spidework grass, rocking in the dark and coming home all bruises. With a sharp scent of almost blood, her sleep talk came coded, scents unlatched, crying out old names from nowhere lands. Something sinister had taken root, and so I looked to our mother hushed in the kitchen, sighing over sickly hyacinths. A vicious curse calls for cleansing. Thank you. 
Um, I don't know whether to leave it there. I might have time for a small one other. Definitely. Definitely. I don't. I don't have no concept of time up here. Definitely. You've got it. Okay, yeah, I'll do. I'll do two. I'll, I'll do two. Do two more. <laughs> Page one. <laughs> oh God, you all are so great. Um, okay, I should probably go back to my sticky notes. They were helpful. Okay, two more. Um, since you mentioned ichthyosis. And I always feel like I claim to write about that a lot and my grasp and understanding of that concept changes constantly. But this is a poem I wrote after Derek Yarman's Prospect Cottage of the same name. And uh, it was during his exhibition in Emma a few years ago. And uh, I was just so struck by seeing uh, a picture of the cottage and hit the garden that he grew um, in the veritable wasteland and just how much of a symbol of like defiance and hope that it was and uh yeah I got really got stuck and I started making notes on my phone then that became this poem prospect cottage what was originally a Victorian fisherman's hut on the shingle shores of Kent near Dunagas nuclear power station on the very doorstep of the finest fish and chips in all England became a hideaway choked with clematis montana Surrounded by small circles of flint, standing stones, dolmens and driftwood from the beach, hid his timber walls drowned in gallons of pitch-black paint, complete with yellow frames which sting hot like a bee in summer. Like all great works of art, he knew the setting mattered, knew that paradise haunts some gardens while others end up like bad children. If his home was going to shelter the whole night at rest, it ought to sleep standing up, with its back to the rain, until one wall starts speaking poetry, and the rising sun knocks like an old friend. Thank you. See, they're not all spooky. Um, I'll, read, I'll read one final one, and it is the final one. Haha, <laughs> I've read you the whole book. No, I haven't. You should still maybe get one. This is a poem... Uh, which I like, a dig. Uh, I like it a great deal, and uh, can't say that. F I don't know if anybody can say that for all their poems, but I love this one. It's called Latency, and it's just about interconnectedness of all things. Just a small concept. These nights I lie with one eye closed into the pillow, thumbing my most immediate feelings into a text which I have learned is transported to you through a series of unsophisticated underwater wires. Like a fistful of warmed rack dug deep into the rug of the ocean, fiber optic cables whisper blink light pulses under the guise of phytoplankton. Whirring almost at the speed of light and in some parts patched thin as a few strands of hair in wind. Or maybe, or maybe, it is more like the internet of fungus, connecting the Douglas fir and paper birch as they blow back gasps of carbon between their roots. It's all connected, the femur, tibia and fibula, heavy bones of the animal running through the storm. Thank you. wonderful gorgeous Donegal accent <laughs> it really is I, I, it's one of my favourites so John Clegg is 
an extremely well-known dynamic bookseller. I mean, we're really is. I mean, we're all so fond of him. I Thank you very much. had a lump in my throat when I came in and saw him. It was just memory of 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 good times we had before, and they're just started again. So, apart from being a very well-known dynamic bookseller, and always promoting other people's poems. He really is so enthusiastic. It's lovely to come in here and he drags you downstairs and starts pointing things and it's really great. But he's such a fine poet himself. And I mentioned The Uncanny with with Jess, but it's very strong in these poems as well with this terrific sense of place. And again, like Jess, I think he pulls back the curtain and it's so inviting to be a reader inhabiting this kind of, he has these dreamlike scenarios. I particularly loved, I really fell in love with Boneless, the first poem I saw. Um, it's extremely hard to pull off comic horror, but this has it in spades. It's really great. And, and Boneless, it, it reminds me a bit of Conrad's Secret Sharer, that kind of mystery and the terror and you're not sure who the ghost feels real. Really real. So his poems are very succinct and beautifully turned and they're so light in the Italo-Calvino sense. That is, he thinks of light as a value where all the weight is removed. And John does that. You feel all the weight's been removed from the poems, but you can feel this undertow of knowledge and experience underneath. And he's such a gift for surprising, unforgettable, concrete images. There are two that are just burnt into my mind from reading this over the last couple of weeks. It's the boneless ghost beating at the style like a bag of soot. And then there's a really short poem about the first American stone house. And um, there's a tray of volivongs that was all that was passed from. There's a kind of a plaintive, um, melancholic kind of funny tone. The speaker is talking about that that's what all was that was passed between the stone walls all day was a plate of volifongs. And I just love that, the kind of anarchic tone of that. It's it's really great. He's got such a distinctive voice. Oh you can of course, yes. I've been making very free with the uh, with the water. Um, um, a long, a long while ago, many, many long evenings ago, uh, we were running a film uh, night in this bookshop, and uh, which we do down in the basement. And I wasn't, uh, I wasn't watching the film. I was up here making sure that no uh, late attendees came through the door. Um, and the shop was absolutely empty. Not a soul in the shop. I'm certain of it. Nobody was down in the basement. I know that as well. nobody was down in our back office. I know that as well. And um, everybody in the basement was watching the film. And just where Daphne is sitting, as plain as day, I heard a broad cough, like a very, very loud and distinct cough. And you could absolutely trace it to where it was coming from, but there was certainly nobody there. Um, And I appealed on Twitter for suggestions about what what to do about this, because it's... uh, There was another cough subsequently, and it was becoming a problem. And... uh, the poet uh, Vani Capildeo suggested that I go down and run a glass of water and place it where the, uh, where the cough was coming from. Uh, I did so, and uh, there was no more coughing after that. But in general, it is not a wise business to do favours for ghosts. And um, this, is, uh, this is a poem about um, not doing favours for ghosts. Uh, boneless. 
I helped a boneless ghost to cross a stile. He'd been beating at it like a bag of soot. I held him on the crossbeam till I reckoned he'd some balance. Then I let him batter off, flag in high wind like, toward the, the wood round Jarvis Brook. This was at barely dusk. I thought he'd like it better on the other side. I thought to stumble on him early meant it was a favour that he wanted, helping over. Now I wish I'd left him thrashing at the bar, being worse luck where he is, met in tall pines. I wish, instead, I'd slackened my way home. Uh, this is a, a very short elegy for the poet Clive James, um, who I, I was moderately fond of as a poet and a critic. I always looked forward to seeing his poems in the mag or wherever. Um, it's, the title is um, his own description of um, what Dante's regular stanza was like, um, standard crofter's style. At Helly's New Year's Eve on Park Parade, when Ed and I went out to smoke a jay, we helped ourselves across a palisade of woven willow, one foot high or so, a maple sapling on the other side, and might have both gone further and fared worse when Helly's father came out and he said, Now, that's Clive James's garden. And it was. <laughs> um, um, this, um, this poem is, um, is entirely fiction, and none of the people in it are real people. Um, and the Blood Axe collection mentioned is not a real Blood Axe collection. Um, weather station. Our rent was just to check and log the rain gauge. Half a writer's residency cottage. Half a cl cliff-top weather station used in term for teaching. In the attic bedroom, my wife's third Blood Axe collection, Shearwater, took shape. We cuddled on the camp bed. I found sheep roots. On our seventh evening, the VC himself appeared, showed interest in the poems, bravely swallowed one glass of his own rotten Prosecco. Filthy storm. If I might hazard an interpretation. <laughs> I ran out in shattering rain to check the rain gauge, found the pin had shorn, the cup was bobbing on the chalk cliff path, lip of a waterfall. Meanwhile, the curtailed lawn was liquefying through my insoles, insoles, chalk soil mud like separated paint and this concerned me not at all because I saw the lightning slam down twice into the Celtic Sea for emphasis and straight away remembered what we'd married for. Um. <laughs> it was just causing trouble. Do I have uh, some... Um. So um, one half of the uh, of the book is like that, and the other half is um, poems um, uh, mainly set in uh, entirely set in in Quebec in uh, in Canada on the Gaspe Peninsula, which um, is the sort of south uh, side of the River Lawrence. Um, but for most of it, you can't see the North Bank. It's got it's got so wide by that point. It's the most um, stunning countryside I've been to. I I loved it very dearly. Um, and as well as thanking Daphne and Anna at Hazel for doing such an incredible job with uh, with this pamphlet and with with all their productions, um, I'd like to uh, thank the people who looked after us in um, in Canada, the uh, the Charbonneaus and Helga and Rolf. Um, I'll just read um, uh, one Canada poem. 
um, to wrap up um, about a tiny town called uh, Pardew, which I liked a, a great deal, the spookiest place I've been. Um, dormer windows. Grid streets in Pardew, oriented so the sun may rise on cue in certain dormer windows, are a star map out of kilter with the field lines, which justify their own grid by the gradient at which cows topple in high weather. Where the grids mesh, Pardew takes priority. Those fields which abut town backlots carve out equilateral packages of diddly squat. Like here, two cows relentlessly chew off the overlay, expose the one-to-one -one map of the very local. Houses, being fixed, seem transitory, impositions on this other grid, which, though imaginary, is our measure of the permanent. Because what can't be filched needn't be nailed down. Thank you very much. I didn't need your water after all, Martina. You should have read that. I love this one as well. Oh, sorry, sorry. It's so good. Thank you very Is much. It's time to read it now, no? What a... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Too late, is it? We don't. Um, Have we time? If we, yeah, just one more. Will you read one more as well? Let's do let's do one more each. Yeah. You go first. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um uh, this one's about um uh, a shipwreck museum on the uh, on the Gaspé Peninsula for the shipwreck of the um RMS Empress of Ireland, which I commend very highly to anyone visiting the Gaspé Peninsula. Um <laughs> Well, the, be the first place I go to. It really is. It really is worth really going. Like it's it, yeah. uh, compared to the tap they got out of the Titanic. This was much shallower, and so they they could get almost almost everything. And it's it's a joy. Oh, it's it's wonderful. Uh, yeah. um, RMS Empress of Ireland. In the shipwreck museum, I look at the toilet seat, which needed nineteen painstaking dives to bring to the surface, and here are a number of rivets which held in place fourteen tanks of fresh water for poached eggs, bathing, wetting the rim of the highballs at 3pm before grinding each glass down hard over a tray of sugar. And none of those tanks breached the night the ship went under, but now and again erupted on the riverbed. Mm, it's really haunting. What are you going to read? Oh my goodness. I wish I had a poem about a toilet seat. <laughs> <laughs> what about Orlando? Oh, yeah, it's very good. I was hoping you'd... Up with something. 
Um, I can hardly think of anything because I'm still thinking about the the lightning striking the Celtic Sea twice. Yeah. Gosh. Okay, thank you for picking something. This is uh, Orlando. Uh, might surprise you to hear is written after Virginia Woolf. I was once in love with a man who died for a week and took death sleeping in small doses. He was ground out of granite and rainbow, a mixture of brown earth and blue blood. He slept with a gorse bush under his pillow and became infected with the pollen of literature. He had the shapeliest legs of any known nobleman, and his eyes did me a violence, drenched violets. He loved to feel the earth's spine beneath him, trusted only elk hounds and rose bushes. He matured into womanhood under the watch of three sisters, purity, chastity, and modesty. She was both 36 and 300 and outlived all of her many lovers. She found a husband on the moors with an ear to ground and a wedding wing twined from root. She was an ambassador, duke, patroness of letters, and struggled and straddled the gulf of time with finesse. She knew all about the secret transaction of poetry and carried her life's work sewn into her dress. Thank you. So now we've time for questions. Yes, we have. If, um... I've been told to look to the right... Um, and to the camera and say if anybody would like to ask questions for people at home and now I've got to watch my email <laughs> so anybody like to ask anything here while we're waiting for the chat to come in electronically um, I'd like to ask a question to yes one of the things that um, I really really enjoyed about weeding was how how the sort of lazy motion from thought to thought of some of the poem, poems and the sort of insouciance that seems to be being, that they seem to celebrate. I, I love that in Asleep on the Wing. I love that in this poem, Slouching, especially. I have to Would say. you say it's <laughs> part of your, does it feed into the practice of writing them as well? Is, it, is the practice of writing them sort of trying to uh, open yourself up to sort of slouch deliberately and make it uh... I am an expert in slouching <laughs> yeah. I've given in, you a very ropey chair and in, and in lazy lazy motion very much um, that's a very good question I think it does sort of uh, lend itself to kind of the practice of writing I never write anything with the intention of it of it coming together with other things which may have to change after this because I presented itself as an issue um but yeah, I, I suppose it kind of ties into that uh, that constant thought that's kind of ringing around in my head of of, of all things kind of being connected and uh, affecting each other and influencing each other and everything can be likened to something else. Um, which kind of makes me think, very unrelated tangent. Me and my friend were talking yesterday over lunch and she was telling me about two problems that presented them, themselves in her life over the last month and... Uh, we were talking and I was like, if you look at them really, really, really abstractly, these two problems that are nothing alike are kind of alike. Everything was fine and then there was an issue and then it wasn't fine, but now it's kind of okay. And she was kind of rightly said that uh, if you look at anything abstractly enough, it's all kind of alike. <laughs> I think that's pretty much where I think I'm that's at. that's a pretty good definition of poetry in general is uh, looking abstractly enough at things until they're all uh, wonkily alike. I'd... 
<laughs> I hope that answers you your take question. That to the bank. <laughs> um, I was going to ask you a very quick question as well, if you don't mind. It's not as well thought out as that. I just wanted to ask you, I suppose, I'm always really interested with where people begin a poem. And I was particularly struck with, with many of your very carefully crafted images. And I wonder if you start with more often an idea or like an image. I think, I mean, it's, it's hard to put my finger on it, but I think more often with a particular word or something at the back of my mind that uh, I want to, I definitely want to get in somewhere or other and then fitting things around, uh, around that. I think that any image is mainly there for the sake of a word that's, that's inside it rather than the words being there for the, for the sake of the images. That's um, interesting. It's, uh, I certainly can't so, remember sitting down consciously with an idea yeah. to start writing before. So the words for you are kind of organic, do you think? Like a word brings up lots of... Yeah, things. lots of associations, or at least yeah. you know if it's if it's material that you want to that you want to take up or not. We were and talking about the uh, the tat stalls in Camden Passage yeah. earlier, and it's it feels like like that to me. There's a, a lot of great deal yeah. of great deal of tat. It's not all for everyone, but some of it will be for you. And you like you know I love the way some of them are really pared down, like the RMS Empress of Ireland. Do you start with them longer and then just cut them, or do you come in quite small? Um, you know, some of them get a great deal of cutting and yeah. uh, some of them get not enough cutting. Yeah. Um, no, I feel that. I really feel it's like the tip of the iceberg, which is, that's a bit of word association there, thinking of the Titanic. But it feels like they're sitting on so much more, I think. Yeah, but it's rubbish. It doesn't matter. Trash icebergs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So you wouldn't show your first drafts to anyone then, would you? If, if anyone was stupid enough to be interested, of course I would. <laughs> not only out of ego, not out of... Uh, not out of expectation that they would find uh, a great deal of uh, to enjoy in them. Yeah. I do felt the two of you both had this kind of eerie, uncanny thing going on as well. Did you find that... I, like, did you see it in each other? Or? I felt reading uh, reading Jess's pamphlet that there were constant moments of connection. We both yeah. have poem. We're, you, yours is weeding, and I have a poem about weeding. Um, there were animals colliding. It's um, all sorts of strange things. But I think you find that if you just pick any two random poetry books uh, for the for the same reason that you I were look at them that you abstractly. were saying. Yes. <laughs> That's okay. Come on. Yeah, I would definitely agree. There were there were some instances um, when I was when I was when I was reading through yours, and I was kind of just kind of thinking maybe you'd seen mine before, or something <laughs> in a dream. No, it, but it, there were there were moments that I feel like they were speaking to each other, and I wondered maybe they had been kind of curated and thought up over a similar timeline. Although we live quite far away and experiencing different things entirely, we all as a as a society were kind of experiencing one thing unanimously and maybe that kind of had some effect that is, on this of that of course is the actual answer isn't it overlapping it's, conversation uh, <laughs> yo you're quite correct that's uh, I think neither of them are sort of consciously or self-consciously lockdown books but uh, 
God, anything produced at the moment is going to be whether or not it... Uh... Yeah, we're never going to get away from that. <laughs> well, I don't know. When I was reading them, I felt that it was like a... I know the kind of underlining currents, but I felt it was like such an escape from everything. Um, That's what writing I don't, them felt yeah, like I don't, for me. There are exceptions, but I'm, I'm not attracted if I hear something's a pandemic, something or other. <laughs> It's too soon. It's too soon, but I, yeah. And Ooh, but the books have started to come in already, you know, the ones which are self-consciously about the lockdown. We won't be rid of them for another five years <laughs> and nothing will sell. Do, oh, that would be great. The question of Jess, when you start home, do you know if it's going to be, have line breaks or if it's going to be closed? Do you ever sort of start to put line breaks in and then stop? And, you know, the cadences are, are, are so there that I just, I mean, I'd love to know the process. May I repeat that question for uh, people listening at home? Yeah. Um, when you start to write a poem, um, at what stage do you know that it's going to be a, in prose or with line breaks? When do, when do the line breaks come in and how do they affect the cadence of the... Uh... Uh, I think... As a starting point, uh, that can be answered largely with the the wonderful musicality of a Donegal lilt um, infects itself in anything I, I write or think. Um, no, it's not all music inside my head. I think I start um, poems in a weird way a lot of the time. I like to do like little thought bubbles and they usually have a, a suggested title in the middle and it kind of like is a, a sort of a, a, a diagram of sorts and then it all starts to come together. And a lot of the time I write them and kind of like run on. And then I start reading it out to myself and I record myself on my phone to see where like natural breaks are. And like, I think that's probably something a very well-established uh, poet told me to do at one point. Um, I have certain ideas sometimes I get into my head that uh, certain themes and titles and subjects of poems speak to the form. And uh, I did quite a lot of experimenting with form in the in the last little while and during my master's in Queens and Belfast um much much under the influence of a fantastic tutor uh Padraig Regan who taught us everything there was to know about forms um so I've experimented with them a lot and uh yeah I think it, I think it really depends I definitely don't ever start a poem being like this is going to be a prose poem it's more like I write it and then it kind of sh shows me where it wants to be or leads me where it wants to go and uh, I feel like it's all rather undeliberate, and maybe that's bad to admit that, but it kind of feels very in intrinsic or, or like it's telling me to do it. Um, so I am not the master behind it. It speaks for itself. John. <laughs> I can hear you, I can hear you, but I'll repeat the question back to myself for the... <laughs> um, you do really interesting things with narrative in your poems. Um, uh, and that always feel like a kind of window into a fascinating narrative that is moved on by the images. So the images are kind of taking a functional place in the narrative of the poem. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts about narrative in the poem and um, whether you've ever, why you use narrative in poems rather than prose, and if you think that's interesting. Um, so the, the question was, um, why um, I use uh, narrative in poems rather than prose and for thoughts in general on narrative. Um, uh, poems rather than prose because um, I can do poems uh, and they're uh, 
and also they're the they're the narratives I like to read. Um, and it feels unfair to the world to be uh, subjecting them to things that I wouldn't want to read myself. Um, thoughts on narrative in short poems in general? I I do think there needs to be some sort of impetus to get a poem from from start to finish. Um, I and whether that's narrative or argument or the sort of illusion of argument that you can create with formal structures or aleatoric structures. Um, I do think there needs to be something giving it, uh, giving it propulsion. Um, and I think narrative is as good as, as anything for this. It's, but really, I think it's just a question of getting from one line. It's just a way to get from one line to the other in the mm. same way that uh, rhyme, I suppose, is a way to get from one line to the other. Um, Yates, I remember, said that he could never write a poem without rhyming because he wouldn't know what the next line was going to be. I think that's the, that's the good reason for doing almost anything in a poem. I think, as well, poetry has drama at the heart a lot of the time, and I think you've got a really fantastic sense of drama and really good timing. Thank Even when much. you were reading, you could feel that drama, couldn't you, with the ghost and the... Um, yeah, it's a very exciting, the fish poem. Thank you. Yeah, I, you know, because I think, yeah, lots of, um, I notice there's lots of, you know, beating and lots of verbs. You're, there's a lot of movement in your poems. You spin a very good yarn. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> but there is, you, um, and, and there was another one that I thought this was really typical of you. We all run to the side of the boat. You know, there's, there's, there's volivants being passed across. There's a lot of <laughs> movement and it's, it's done in this kind of comic way. It's, it's, it's really effective. Um, so it could be, you know, the movement as well. But it's, I think they're intrinsically very dramatic and they've got like proper narrators in that. I was very taken in by the man with the wife who had the third collection from Shearwater. <laughs> I was Googling it for ages. <laughs> the hell? I didn't know that about John. <laughs> um, so I like that as well, because sometimes people think poems have to be true, and it's like, you can do everything in a poem. You can do I think that would be everything in your poem. Yeah. Um, I, I and I think, think both should, of you do. I think we should probably wrap up. Yeah. But Thank you so much, um, oh, Martina. God, it was thank a you gift so to much, me. Thank you so much, Jess. And thank you so much, um, Daphne and Anna, for uh, producing these and for bringing this, um, this whole event together. It's been an, an absolute treat to, to have the first hybrid event since, um, since March 2020. Um, and thank you also to the long-suffering staff of uh, this institution. Um, and uh, and the ghosts, and with, uh, yes, yes, and, ghost. and the ghosts. Um, and uh, with with that, uh, good evening, everybody, um, everybody on the camera, and uh, good evening, everyone, uh, everyone not on the camera. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit LondonReviewBookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 